Hello and welcome to Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. The leading literary award in the English-speaking world, the Booker Prize, has been won by Paul Lynch for his fifth novel, Prophet Song. Lynch was born in Limerick in 1977, grew up in County Donegal and lives in Dublin. He was previously the chief film critic of Ireland's Sunday Tribune newspaper and wrote regularly for the Sunday Times on cinema. He's now a full-time novelist. Paul, it's really wonderful to, to be here with you. I don't know how much you expected to be here today, though. I can say thoroughly didn't expect to be here. It's been an extraordinary journey. I, I, I see I've become a meme. The moment Paul Lynch wins the Booker Prize, and I've, I've watched it and I thought, OK, yeah, that guy does look surprised. I was surprised. I'd made my peace with not winning. And, you know, like, like when, you, when you're in the room for these things, you know you know that that five five of you are going to leave the room without winning i've been in the room for other things and i and it's it's sore it's 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 sore it's 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 difficult and and then a day or two later you're like that was a beautiful experience um so i've made my peace with it and i thought okay if i don't win now i'll have juice to to get back in the room whereas now i've i've completely different problems like i've won the booker prize so what now it's you know it's like gosh how am i going to follow profit song and the truth is I probably won't. I'd probably go a little bit off-piste now for the next one. I'll go a bit weird, you know, because I can, because maybe I should. Were you practising your disappointed but bravely taking it on the chin face? I was actually doing deep breathing. No one could see me, but I was doing, like, it's not box breathing, but it's like four in, four hold, six out, two hold. And I was doing that for 15 minutes before the announcement just to calm myself because the pressure in that room is metamorphic. It's intense. And... It's sort of, you glide through the night thinking, okay, this is going to be fine. It's going to, and and then, then you're not, and it's not, and it's 15 minutes to go. And yeah, it's, 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 it's the Booker Prize. You know, it is what it is. I want to go right back to, to the beginning, though, and to your early life. Tell me about your parents and where you grew up. So my parents, uh, Pat and Mary, they met in Limerick when they were 18 and 19. Isn't that lovely? And they're still together. And my father was in the Merchant Navy as a radio officer, so he went off to sea, spent spent the best part of the 1970s traveling around the world, building a stack of passports that was endlessly fascinating to me when I was a kid. And my mother uh, worked as a secretary, and they're both wonderfully smart people. And I was born in 77, and dad came back from the sea and took a job at the Irish Coast Guard, basically shipped ashore. So he became like a, a you know, ship ashore emergency rescue coordinator. and But they would also be doing banal things like giving the wet, you know, forecasts to ships out on the Atlantic. And so I grew up first five years of my life in Mallon Head, which is the most northerly point of Ireland. And it's remote. It's windblown. It's salty. It's metaphysical. You know, I, I grew up with that sort of, that sense of barren emptiness just imprinted on my psyche. And... At the same time, I have a lovely memory of my mother, who became a lit- an adult literacy teacher, teaching me to read with all brand cards that she cut out and sitting on the floor with her learning words to read. And and so, you know, books were important. I remember basically reading everything that, that I could read. And I got a job. They got me a job when I was 11 in the secondhand bookshop in the town because they couldn't keep me in books. And... 
you know, it, it was it was a childhood that was we moved we moved to a town called Carondona when I was five, and in a way, you know, somebody once joked when they saw a video clip of 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 a Corpus Christi parade in 1991 that I could have been in but wasn't for some reason. I was probably on holidays. They said, "My God, you grew up in the 1950s." And it's it's true. I mean, I I kind of know what it might, may have been like to grow up in the fifties, because in the eighties in Ireland, particularly in Donegal, it was very, it was just it it was a sort of almost a threadbare existence. I mean, it was you know it was modern, but I remember when we didn't have phones, and 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 you know I remember getting our first phone, you know, as a kid. I remember life was just sort of it was it was it was a simpler time, and I was a kid who was. I suppose seeking a lot more than I could get out of that environment. I used to fantasize about growing up in Limerick where I was supposed to, you know, where my changeling was. And so I, I, I was probably unhappy there. I was a kid who was alienated by that world. And that alienation then has sort of grown into something much greater and has become a central part of my fiction. And did the political troubles impinge on you at all? Oh, you were, we were very much aware of it. Um, you know, I lived 20 miles from the border, from Derry City. So we would, back in those days, everybody used to shop in Derry. It was cheaper to shop in, shop in Derry City, which is in Northern Ireland. And uh, so you'd go across the border and, I mean, the, you would you'd go through the army checkpoint. And that was an ordeal. You know, you just, the checkpoints, you'd, you'd, there'd be a watchtower. There was like security fencing and barbed wires. Terrifyingly stern army officer who'd be checking my dad's driving license sometimes you'd be dead you'd be asked to open the boot of the car so you were entering into a militarized environment and i remember walking up shipkey street which is a sort of main street in, in Derry on a hill and seeing was it like an, an army or a security bulletproof vehicle coming down the street with somebody at the turret with their rifle or their weapon pointed out of it and that's extraordinary stuff to see when you're a kid, but that was that was normal. It was just how life was. He didn't question it, and I mean the atrocities were on the news all the time. So I mean I grew up with that stuff. Tell me about school. Were you always a writer there? Kind of. I was a disastrous pupil. I mean, my gosh, I was great up until primary, the last year of primary, and something changed. And I often wondered what it was. Was it that I was an art, just an artistic person and we have our own way of doing things? I'm very, very much an autodidact. I, I hate being taught. I like to, when I'm interested in something, I'll go after it obsessively and I'll figure it out. I realized that something, this is an interesting thing, that when I was in that final year in primary school, I remember being beaten by a teacher because I couldn't do a maths problem. And he pounded, pounded me on my shoulder because that was his style. He was at the same time an incredible teacher. Like this is it doesn't make sense that I'm saying this, but he, he had a beautiful he introduced things to us that were I remember we didn't meet in school for four sometimes four or five years later. But I think he ruined school for me. I think I think something died in me when that happened. And I only realized this recently and it was while reading another or somebody else was talking about this stuff and I thought, My God, this happened to me and maybe that's what it was because literally from that point on I was finished with school and I just sort of drifted through it and you know I was known as as the poet at one point because there was a school magazine and I was writing densely modernist overwrought Eliot style proof rock uh, impersonating poetry and uh, I was in a band we got played on the radio national radio twice I had a radio station that I had 
there was it, you know we actually had a radio station you know my father was was something of an engineer and he got one of his pals to make us uh, build us a transmitter and uh, myself and my friend we, we, he built us a transmitter and we had a microphone made out of a out of a uh, a piece of toilet piping we didn't even have a proper microphone because the, we just the money wasn't there for that and every saturday we would broadcast no name radio and we would just make up our own kind of monty python esque skits and download music from mtv and play it and i had a great time in that respect i look back on it really fondly what happened when you left school i went to dublin i because because i didn't care so much about school i just thought i want to work with words i want to work with language and so i sort of swerved i was i was my everyone expected me to go to university directly and I said, no, actually, I'm going to go and, and study journalism. And so at that time, there was a couple of courses in the country that they were, they were like a two-year course, but they were, they were really highly esteemed because a lot of great Irish journalists had come from these courses. So I went and did one of them. And what, so I was, I was 18, and what happened to me was that we had to do placements for like one-week placements. And I blagged my way into the Sunday Tribune, which was sort of like the Irish Observer. It was, you know, it was a serious, left-leaning intellectual broadsheet newspaper my parents were i grew up you know that was the paper in the house on a sunday i thought well i'll go get the tribune so i went and they said sorry no chance you're not on the the, the master's journalism course that that's all that's, that's all we take from and i said okay but i just want one week and the person in charge said uh, uh no so i rang her again and said look will you give me a week and she kind of said no but she was softening and i kept coming at them until they gave me a week and i went in and I never left. I went straight to the subs desk because the lecturer on the course was himself a very senior back desk person for the Irish Independent. And he took me aside and he said, Paul, go to the subs desk. Ask to go to the subs desk. I went to the subs desk and just this extraordinary thing happened. They just took me on board. They got me. They, or I got them. We just all, it was extraordinary. And I hardly spoke for about three or four years. But I found myself like editing within like, Two weeks, I remember subbing a, 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 Joe, a Joe O'Connor column, and Joe O'Connor was my favorite writer at that time, and suddenly I'm editing his column. I was, I was like, what has just happened here? It was extraordinary. That was, I mean, at the same time, I then went to UCD and studied philosophy and English, and I got to third year, and I didn't complete it because I made a decision not to do it, upsetting my mother again. I, you know, there was a couple of reasons. One was that I was unhappy with the way English was probably being taught at the time. Some some of the lectures were great, but it was just, it was this sort of post-structuralist, overly sort of, I couldn't understand what Marxism or Freudianism or had anything to do with, with, with English literature. It had nothing to do with truth or beauty. I just, I just, these were just these very simplistic lenses to take to the complexity of a Keats poem or whatever it was. And I just found myself alienated by that. But at the same time, the Sunday Tribune were just offering me more and more senior positions and I was, was I 22 or 23? And the editor came over to me and he said, Paul, he said, the chief sub is away on holidays. The deputy chief sub is away on holidays. We want you to act as chief sub editor for the paper next week and to get the newspaper out. And I had been doing a lot of chief subbing work on, on the property section. I had taken over the production of the college newspaper at UCD. So I, I was, I had got quite good at it quite quickly. And I said to him, basically, are you nuts? I said, I have an exam. My exams are in a couple of weeks, in their next week. And he looked at me and he said, well, do you want to chief sub-edit the Sunday Tribune or not? And that was it. I swerved again. You ended up being a film critic. How come? 
because I love cinema and I had been watching films furiously for years on my own, not thinking that I was ever interested in being a critic, but just taking cinema really seriously. I used to take a week off work every year to go watch the films at the Dumb Film Festival. I used to read Derek Malcolm and then Peter Bradshaw religiously in The Guardian. And I remember when Derek Malcolm retired, he, he I printed off his his best 100 films of all time, many of which were hard to get. And I just spent a couple of years ticking them off whenever I could get to them. So I was, I was a cinephile, but I kind of thinking I was a cinephile. And what had happened was I, I realized that later was that I had been overcompensating for what I had been starved of in Donegal. And I, I remember seeing Three Colors Red late one night on Channel 4 or BBC. And I didn't know what it was. I'd missed the first two minutes or three minutes. So I was like, I don't know, maybe 17 or 18. And being powerfully just overcome by what I'd seen. It's a film I still think is an extraordinary masterpiece. I've seen it multiple times. I still cry at the end of that film every time. And I, and I don't know why. I, like it, It's nothing to do with what's happened. It's to do with something that's been woven in that film that remains mysterious and ineffable. But it's done and it overwhelms me. And, and I sort of... That experience became a sort of foundational cinematic experience. And so I was chasing that up until... Up until you know, I became a chief film critic, and I was writing two thousand words a week on cinema. I was I reviewed over a thousand films in about four or five years, and and then the tripping collapsed, and I got a phone call on day two of my sabbatical. I had just taken a sabbatical to write the second draft of Red Sky Morning, and that's when I swerved again, and I knew I needed to write fiction, and I made a decision to just uh, a decision where there would be no plan B. And there has been no plan B since. Really, really brave. Tell me about first being published. I couldn't get an agent for life nor money. Nobody would touch me. Amusingly, a very powerful agent said, oh, nobody's interested in Irish fiction right now. So I'm sure he he, uh, he came through that day because um, there's been obviously quite an explosion now. And I, I, it took me quite some time. I got an agent and he said to me, it's going to be a hard sell. Uh, Red Sky was a very poetic novel. I was really pushing language in a way that, that, that was, you know, a little bit edgy. It sort of is almost like merging of Heaney with Faulkner, Cormac McCarthy, you know, and George Manley Hopkins, all in one sort of gumbo stew, you know. But in the end, there were six publishers wanted it, and one publisher paid a lot of money for it. And, and then nobody reviewed it in the UK, and we were baffled. We were just like, how did that happen? Like, but that's publishing. That's, that's the journey, and... Uh, there's no straight path. It's not linear. It's that's what I've learned that the the road has been a hard road, but I've always just been interested in in the in like like the 19 year olds going to the Sunday stream. I just wanted I just want to work with language and words and to be in language, you know, for a set period of time every day. But you did win prizes. They came. They started to come. Yeah, I mean, Grace, my third one, won the Kerry uh, Group Irish Novel of the Year, and that was the, the point. It started to change for me in Ireland. I mean, in France, the French got, got me off from the first. It was marvellous. You know, I, I, I sort of hit a I, caught a, I caught a, I caught a win there from the first book. And so I've always had a high degree of recognition in France. They seem to just get, they got me from the, from the get-go. They knew that my writing was this sort of channeling of the Southern Gothic with an Irish lyricism. They, they knew the books were metaphysical. They knew how to unpack them. They got the ideas. And that was, that was, it was really gratifying. Your personal life during all of this time, you got married, you had children? I got married, I had two kids. I lived a very 
basic life, you know, just watching the money all the time. I, 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 I live in a very, very reasonably humble, normal house, a terraced house in, in a very working class Dublin area. Nothing, nothing stylish, nothing fancy because one could not afford it. And, you know, Pat McCabe, a great Irish writer, once said to me, you know, if you keep your overheads low, you can do this full time. And so that was the decision I made. I used the money from the first, that big book deal, to basically write the next two books. And any money I got from that point on went back into the writing to just fund the writing. And I kept saying to myself, I'm going to invest in my writing, regardless of what it means for, for you know. So there's been moments of, of when I've hit the wall financially. There was one time I had to phone my parents and say, okay, I've gone to zero. And I, I, was, not, I was not happy about that, but... But that's how it is. But I've also received grants from the Arts Council, you know, at times, and they've been enormously supportive as well, as they have been with many other Irish writers. And so, yeah, I mean, that was my life. I've since, since that, I've become separated. Um, I had Ill, Ill health, you know. Um, and I'd like to talk about that yeah. because this book really comes out of that place where you're in a position where your marriage is disintegrating and then suddenly you get hit with terribly bad medical news. You're in the middle of writing a book that you don't think is going anywhere. Well, the book was written, actually, when everything went south. So what I will say is I had a diagnosis of cancer. I don't have cancer now. And I'm told I I'm more than likely will not have it again. So, you know, I'm moving forward. But... It created a condition where coming out of COVID as well, there was just, you know, I, I, uh, my marriage ended and I'm sort of still figuring out all of these things now, you know. it's it's uh, The Booker Prize has, has, add, has added another extraordinary layer to my life of who is Paul Lynch? I don't know anymore. Let's go to Prophet's Song, this amazing award-winning book. So you've said in previous interviews you were writing a book that you really shouldn't have been writing at all and that it really wasn't going anywhere. And then this one just came to you. Yeah, you know, when you're a novelist, what you're looking for is a vessel. And that vessel can contain your obsessions. But at the same time, it also needs to be a story that moves. And... I couldn't find the story that moves. I was sort of chipping through granite, trying to reach the other side at something. And I was for six months and I knew it was the wrong book. But you keep going anyway because you've nothing else to do. And then there was, it, was, it, was like, it was a Friday afternoon. It was about three o'clock. And I just went, okay, I'm done with this thing. This damned book. I'm sick of it. It's not giving back to me. That's the thing. It's not giving back. And I went, okay, relax. I could feel somewhere that there was something else waiting to come out and this is the thing when you're a novelist you do learn to trust your intuition you learn to sort of pay attention to that receptivity that to those sort of the feelers you know that that, that there's that the, the signals that they're there because I'm also a meditator and so I, I, I watch my mind I'm very in tune with my subconscious and I know when it wants to speak and I thought okay I'll I'll come back on Monday morning I came back on Monday morning opened a page and waited and then the first page arrived and I wrote it almost as it is now. And it just it just came. And it's one of those mysterious things because the meaning of the book's encoded in the first few sentences. So it's possible that my subconscious knew exactly what I was doing, but my rational mind hadn't a clue. And that's the thing. That's how we are in life too. It's my you know, as a artists and writers, we watch our minds, we watch the subconscious. And I'm very interested in, in, in the idea that it's so much of what artists watch and pay attention to, that higher mind, that creative mind, 
it's the same mind that the Buddhists have been talking about for centuries. It's the same mind that the, the Christian mystics have been talking about. It's a higher aspect of mind. It's always there, but it's very hard to hear it, particularly in the modern life. So people meditate to get to it. People create art to get to it, to sort of funnel it and channel it down. And in this case, it just it gave me a gift. And I took that gift and I wrote the book. Tell us about the book. Prophet Song is the story of Eilish Stack, who's an ordinary woman with three kids, four kids, three teenagers, three of whom were teenagers. Larry, she's married to, he's a trade unionist. And Ireland is, it seems to be the Ireland that we know. You know, it's the modern European country, Dublin, the modern European city. But yet things are slightly awry. In the background of the book, Ireland has elected a populist government. You know, people are just sort of, they're wary, but they're, things seem to be the same. But Larry is taken in for questioning by the GNSB, the Garden National Services Bureau. And the Teachers Union of Ireland are going, to, are going to march. And he's a trade unionist. And a question is put to him that's a troubling question, which is he is asked to prove that his behaviour as a trade unionist is not seditious to the state. And if you've been living in a liberal democracy all your life, that's an extraordinary thing. And the book, from that point on, charts the unravelling, but not from the point of view of the political but from the point of view of the personal, the personal cost of events. And it does so in a way that eschews distinct political positions and pays instead attention to how ordinary people must deal with the extraordinary outcomes of such situations. I mean, reading it, I felt that it was a book about empathy. It was tapping into people saying, these are ordinary people, this could happen to you. What was happening in the world at the time that made you think about that? We had Trump, we had Bolsonaro, we had, we had Brexit, we had the, sort of the surge of the far right across Europe as a response to Syrian refugees. We just had this unravelling of, of an order that we've taken for granted, and that was pressing into the fiction always. And, you know, I'm wary of allowing the world in in that way, but it, it seemed impossible to escape. It just began to seep up under the line. And, you know, fiction should not be setting out to deliver a message but I found that the writing in this book seek to get past the spectacle of the modern world that we've been bombarded with seek to get past the sort of our way of understanding the world through the spectacle through through news and to get down to the heartbeat of the moment so that we can sort of truly empathically arrive at an understanding of what makes somebody choose to leave their home and what I've learned writing the book is nobody chooses that to make that decision, you have to have your world taken away from you entirely. Paul Lynch, congratulations. It's a book that everybody should read. And uh, now that you've won the booker, they all will. Thank you so much. Prophet Song by Paul Lynch is published by One World. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard and Callum McLean. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.